Loud and clear. 2584, runway 24 left, clear for takeoff. Welcome aboard Leading Edge from aerospacenews.com. This episode, like all our podcasts and videos, is made possible by the generous support of our listener crew. Please join up by visiting aerospacenews.com slash fans and make any contribution you can afford. Every bit of support helps, no matter how small. Thanks. Welcome to aerospacenews.com. I'm glad you made the hyperspace jump to our humble quadrant of the galaxy. This is an exciting episode with our first of hopefully many interviews with astronomer Lauren Biddle. So please stay in orbit because the show starts right after this. Welcome to our channel's first interview or hangout. Our guest today is a newly minted astronomer who is embarking on a career as an exoplaneteer. I hope you'll be as thrilled as I am to have her join us today to share that experience, discuss astronomy, new discoveries, and a lot of other cool things. Please welcome to the AerospaceNews.com crew, Lauren Biddle. Lauren, welcome to AerospaceNews.com. Hey. Where are you joining us from today? So I'm actually currently in Hilo, Hawaii. I see. Really great. Yeah, um, it's absolutely amazing here. I'm really, really happy to be here. And were you always in Hilo, Hawaii, or did you start your academic astronomy career thingy somewhere else? Astronomy career thingy. That's actually that's pretty much how it feels um, in, in the best way possible. So I started out at the University of Arizona is where I got my bachelor's in science in astronomy and physics. And it was, that was a really great experience. And I knew that after that I wanted to keep going. So I plan to go on to grad school and get my PhD in astronomy. Uh, currently at the moment, I'm kind of in limbo between uh, undergrad and grad school. I'm taking a year off to do some research, which is why I'm here. I am at Gemini Observatory and I am uh, participating in an internship. And it's been a really great experience, not only just being on the island, but we even got to go up to the telescopes and work with really great data. So that's uh, what I'm doing right now and where I plan to go. Now you, um, you kind of phoned in college, if I remember correctly from our, our, our background. Um, it was something like advanced basket weaving and something else, or, or <laughs> did I remember that wrong? Advanced, wait, pardon, what? You, have, you actually, truth be told, you actually had a double major, didn't you? Yes, yes, advanced basket weaving, that's where it came in. Uh, a double major in astronomy and physics, and I have to say, a lot of, a lot was learned, and uh, not only in astronomy and physics, but more just how to be an astronomer or a physicist, which was really great. Yeah. And I feel like the U of A was a really great place to do that as well because of the access to the telescopes that we have. I even had the opportunity to operate my own telescope, which I'm not sure if, if many other institutions have one just readily available, even for undergrads to use. So uh, I learned a lot about what it's like to be an astronomer. And, and it, was, it was good after I had gotten my degree that I still felt like I wanted to do it, which I... I can't speak for everyone, but I'm not sure if that's the case for everyone. No, I'm really no, it's, 
it, it, it sounds like you've been very blessed to, to be able to find something that you thought you were going to be passionate about. And after being exposed to it, I'm sure as intensely as you were exposed to it in school, uh, the schooling you've done so far, that you still found that you were passionate for it. So really good for you. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. And the particular subjects that I would like to pursue would be exoplanets. I had the opportunity as an undergrad to do my own research on exoplanets. And I had mentioned earlier being able to operate telescopes and uh, I, the reason that I was, was not only obtaining data for other astronomers, but I got to lead my own observational campaigns, which was really cool. And these were of exoplanets, exoplanet transits, to, uh, I guess, specify which kind of exoplanet data we were uh, obtaining. Um, so I, I think that that's the path that I would like to continue on, but it's... I do have other interests as well. For example, my current research here at Gemini is um, active galactic nuclei, which is something that I haven't worked with at all. And um, I think that's what makes it more exciting, is that maybe I don't know nearly as much about it, which is why I wanted to do this, this internship. And mm. I'm learning a lot of skills that can be applicable to other kinds of research, such as, such as exoplanets. And you, you've got, for, I mean, you, you refer to yourself as an intern, but you've actually got a pretty rad title, don't you? Oh, yes. The rad title would be uh, Exoplaneteer. <laughs> well, there's that, but also at Edgemony, aren't you something, don't you have like a, um, a, a driver-like title as well? Aren't, aren't you a telescope something or other? Telescope no. operator? No. Oh, no, not here. No, oh. not at Gemini. That was back at, uh, at, in, in Arizona. Yes. Ah, okay. My bad. Senior moment. <laughs> no, it's okay. So, so, I can see so how just, that would be. Just to take a moment um, and, and remind uh, our audience about two very important uh, details that you, you've just brought up. One, um, that the whole science of astronomy probably really wouldn't be possible, at least not with the knowledge that we have right now, um, without the understanding we have of the laws of physics. Is, is that not correct? Did, did physics and that double major that you so amazingly achieved, um, did that play a role in enhancing your ability to, to do the astronomy work? Oh, certainly. Yeah, astronomy basically is physics. And I think as an undergrad, I didn't, or as a freshman, really, an incoming freshman, I had the opportunity to speak with an advisor at the, at the astronomy department. And I went in not really knowing that there was so much physics involved. I knew, I knew what I knew about Hubble, being able to take amazing, beautiful pictures. And I knew that I really was amazed by these, these celestial objects that just blew my mind. And I think I was caught up in uh, the romantic aspect about astronomy. And I'm, I'm not at all disappointed by any means about the physics aspect because I'm also mind blown by physics. So it's kind of a win-win. But I definitely learned that you definitely need physics to do astronomy. And to accomplish the major, they, there really weren't too many extra requirements to have 
both majors um, on your degree, uh, you did have to take a lot more labs and more advanced physics courses. But I mean, that's not a bad thing. More, more to apply later on. So, really cool. So one of the one of the lessons here is kids stay in school. <laughs> you could say that, yeah. Stay in school. Maybe learn in school. No, you can stay in school and you can not pay attention. Actually, sometimes not paying attention isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, for example, it depends on how you're not paying attention. I, I found myself sometimes sitting in astronomy classes and um, thinking of physics concepts that could be applied to astronomy situations and they weren't totally related, but if I were as an astronomy major alone, then I might not have been able to make that connection that was like a, a non-required course. And so then my mind would kind of wander in that direction. Of course, come back to where it was supposed to be, but happens a lot. Was it Einstein uh, or was it some other great thinker who pointed out how imagination is um, almost more important than knowledge, than the actual practical knowledge, you know, the ability to, to imagine solutions or even hypothesize, uh, which is probably another, another way of saying imagine um, theories for uh, the spread of life throughout the universe, if that's in fact what's happened, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I, I'm not sure if that was Einstein that says that. Uh, or that said that, but I would believe it. He has a lot of amazing quotes. And some pretty rad hair. And rad hair, and rad slippers. I, there is a, an image online that he has like these giant fuzzy slippers and I just kind of want to like touch them. Uh, anyway, and it kind of looks like his hair, actually. Yeah, we'll find it, I'll find it, I'll show you. Well, but long ago in a galaxy far, far away at the beginning of our conversation, I said there were two things that uh, your background brought up. Um, for, and to recap for those that are still with us, the, uh, the second part was this term exoplanet. Now, for those that have very high levels of space nerd cred, they're going to know what that means. But you're, you're throwing out exoplaneteer and exoplanet like everybody knows what that's about. What is an exoplanet. So an exoplanet is a planet, like a planet in our own solar system, except it has a system of its own. So these planets orbit stars outside of our solar system. Oh. And we know that they're there um, by a few different methods. There's the wobble method that you can take a look at a star in space and it will move back and forth just a little bit due to the gravitational effect on the planet orbiting the star. So you can't really see the planet, but you know it's there. Uh, another way to indirectly observe an exoplanet would be uh, the transit method, which is what I primarily do uh, in my own research. And the transit method is where the planet orbits its host star in our line of sight. So it, it goes between its star and the Earth, and when it passes in front, it blocks out a little bit of light from the star. And we can, with enough uh, precision, enough sensitivity to the light coming from the star, that we could see that dip. And so if we measure how long the dip is and how deep the dip is, we can discover a little bit about what the planet is like. And so that's, and even 
knowing it's there in the first place. That's pretty important too. It's the main uh, type of observations that the Kepler spacecraft did when it wasn't um, injured. Mm. It, th that, that's personally fascinating uh, to me. This is all, at least in um, the scale of human existence, this is all incredibly new where we've gone from theories that exoplanets ought to exist to being able to verify not just the first one, but what the, the list is, is it thousands now or is it just hundreds? Uh, it's in the thousands of exoplanet candidates. Um, or actually, I think it's confirmed exoplanets now. Kepler just came out with a ton of, um, a ton of, actually, I think they're candidates, but um, a ton of huge number, actually. They were able to reduce the data, uh, which is bring out signals in the data that were indicative of exoplanets much more easily with a new method because they have years of data that they need to, to sort through and say, this, is, this star here has an exoplanet, this star here doesn't, which is actually much harder to do than it sounds. So it's really great that we actually have so many uh, candidates to follow up on, which is, which is the point. We want to, to confirm whether or not these signals that we see are the planets. And this is a really new a really new area of research, at least in astronomy. There's many different topics in astronomy. It's not just one, it's not one thing. Um, and I think I recall that the, uh, in the 90s was when exoplanet research really took off. And several years down the road, um, here we are with this gigantic list. And we're at the point now where we can even take pictures of the planet itself. Uh, it's really hard but we can actually directly image them with adaptive optics and with the new telescopes coming up in the near future, near as in like several years, but near enough future, uh, we can take even more images more easily with those telescopes. So it's really exciting. It's an exciting time. Oh, it's incredibly exciting. It seems to me that none of these exoplanets look very much like Earth or Tatooine, for that matter. Um, what's the? Why is it that so far we haven't been finding any other pale blue dots? And are we likely to find pale blue dots in the future? Okay. So um, typically, the exoplanets that you hear about, um, or the ones that we can characterize the best, are larger ones. They're Jovian planets. They're large gas giants, and the reason simply being is they're just easier to detect. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't any rocky Earth-like planets out there. It's what we call an observational bias. We only hear about the big ones because those are the ones we can measure. Uh, luckily though, um, over time that we've been able to uh, characterize smaller and smaller planets, um, there are some super-Earths that we can see and some Earth-like planets, maybe not exactly Earth's radius, but um, we're getting there, certainly. And I, we mentioned earlier the telescopes that are up and coming. Uh, I, that was in correlation with the direct imaging uh, comment. It's going to be really great to use those large collecting areas of the I mean, gigantic mirrors. It's the 30-meter telescope, I know, is a, a really a one coming up. And then there's the lar uh, giant Magellan telescope as well the two that come to mind right away. 
And those will help us tremendously be able to characterize smaller and smaller exoplanets. And eventually we can maybe find Earth 2.0, which would be rad. Uh, <laughs> and also, not only those ground-based telescopes, but JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, is, uh, will help us characterize smaller and smaller planets' atmospheres in the infrared. So it's, it's really it's, it's where we're going. I think within our, definitely within our lifetime, we'll find an Earth-like planet uh, around a, a G-type star, which is like the sun, which is, we want to find us. And maybe, maybe right. it would be cool if we could find like biosignatures in the atmospheres. And these are the telescopes and, and instruments that can, that can help. You, you, you mentioned that a lot of these new telescopes are ground-based. That seems to a non-astronomer to be kind of counterintuitive that they'd be looking for something that's so hard to detect through the um, diffusion, for lack of a better way of describing it, of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, it would seem like all the emphasis and effort should be placed on building new space-based telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope that you mentioned. Why are we looking from the bottom of the fishbowl, as some like to, to, to describe that process? That's a great question. So we... Is it? <laughs> we, no, that's really, that's a great question. Um, the adaptive optics I had mentioned earlier helps us to see through the atmosphere with as little distortion as possible. So we call that seeing, and uh, seeing is the, the, That's the tech. yeah the distortion of light as it passes through the atmosphere. It kind of jumps around a little bit, and it it makes it so we can't observe objects with as high precision. Luckily, with uh, deformable mirrors, there's a secondary. Well, there are the yeah the deformable mirrors. They can have little teeny actuators on the backside, and what they do is they they pulse like a thousand, some ridiculous number times a second. And they use the laser to send uh, the information of the light wave front to the telescope before, uh, just in time so that it can correct for any distortion that the atmosphere causes. So it's almost, almost like you're in space. The only, I mean, it's, the differences are there's still like absorption from certain wavelengths in our atmosphere. So say you're going to do spectroscopy and you wanted to look at a certain wavelength of light, you can't do it as easily on, on the surface as you could in space just because the atmosphere is there. Even AO, adaptive optics, wouldn't, wouldn't help with that at all. So there's definitely limitations, but with where we're going, it's, it's getting more and more plausible to make amazing observations with large aperture, large aperture telescopes on the ground and not only in space. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need space-based telescopes. Uh, so we definitely do. They're very useful because there's, like I said earlier, there are objects in, in science that can't be done on the, on the ground. So if I, understand, if I understand you correctly, um, what you're saying is that in this context of planet hunting, uh, of being a, an exoplaneteer, because of the cost and complexity of building very large structures in space, we make the compromise of being below or at the bottom of the Earth's atmosphere and taking advantage of adaptive optics in order to be able to build something of at least sufficient scale 
that we can do the work that we need to do, at least until such time as we can build, um, because of commercialization of space activity, um, these very large structures in, in outer space or in, in near, near Earth space in the future. Is that kind of what I hear you say? Yeah. And uh, it's also... Okay, don't get all complex <laughs> on me with your answers. It's also a lot easier to fix things when they're down here. And, mm. and uh, space-based telescopes are quite expensive, and it's a, a big risk as well. I know JWST will be located, when it's in orbit, in a position around the Earth that we can't get to to fix it. <laughs> and so if anything goes wrong, it's kind of like, oh well. So that's why we need to, we have the best working on it, and so to avoid that situation altogether. But I know even like sure. with Hubble, it needs glasses. <laughs> when, we, when we first put Hubble into orbit, we took images with it. It wasn't nearly as clear as we had anticipated. It turns out right. that the mirror wasn't perfect. Uh, something had, it, there was a mistake. And so it has, it ha we were able to send up something to correct it. And so now it, I mean, as every, everyone who's seen Hubble images knows that they're absolutely phenomenal images and we can take phenomenal data and do amazing science with it. All these like big words, phenomenal, amazing, but it, it really describes the whole situation, at least to me. So it's really cool that we can access that, but it's a lot easier to fix something on the ground if it goes wrong. So it's, it's a risk, it's expensive, but it's worth it. Sure, sure. Well, and on the ground, you've got obviously more power available for the subsystems to operate your telescope and processing systems. And I'm guessing that it's easier to get to your local Starbucks, et cetera, for those all-night observing sessions as well. Oh, if, so, if only Starbucks was open at night. Or at three in the morning. Actually, I bet you somewhere out there that there's people up enough at night that they need Starbucks at three in the morning and it's available. Anyway, beside the point, um, coffee in general, caffeine, uh, yes. Availability, space. No. Is that one of the fuels of uh, modern astronomical discovery for at least a telescope operator? <laughs> caffeine? Yes. Yeah, caffeine is a lifesaver. Uh, I, I hate to be so dependent on caffeine. I know on my, on my Twitter description it says caffeine keeps me alive. And that's not too much of an overstatement. I think that there have been some points where it's like 4.30 in the morning and we on day, day one is actually the hardest, or night one out of however many nights because that you have, you're getting used to being up at night. You're not in nocturnal mode yet. Um, mm. But it's... The coffee is definitely helps you helps out a lot, and yeah. What were some of your childhood um, and maybe adolescent uh, scientific uh, inspirations and uh, and things that got you sort of uh, focused, slewed your telescope, so to speak, in the direction of astronomy and um, and discovery? Oh. I like talking about that. I'm happy you asked. Um, so my first real experience with anything not on this earth was when I was in Florida with my papa, which is my mom's dad, so my grandpa. I could just call him papa. He had a, a really small telescope. I think it was uh, the, the lens was only a couple inches in diameter, which is, I mean, any telescope's awesome, and you can still see great things with it, which is why it's made such an impact on my life. 
and it was very dark out. We went out to the beach, and there was a lunar eclipse that night, and I didn't know what that was, and he had to explain to me what it was. And I took a look through the telescope at the lunar eclipse, and my, I mean, I was like six at the time, and I remember it so perfectly, like the emotion that like, uh, uh, words don't even, um, that was the moment where I was like, space is real, <laughs> it exists, and I like it. However, I didn't really know that it was something that I wanted to pursue uh, as a career until high school. Um, before that, I wanted to be a marine biologist really bad. I know everything there is to know about sharks. Well, not everything there is to know, obviously. I know a lot, a significant amount about sharks. So maybe someday we can talk about sharks. That'd be really cool. Um, but so. Sharks, sharks in space. <laughs> I think with Sharknado, that actually has happened. Sharknado. Actually, I've seen Sharknado 1, but I haven't seen Sharknado 2, the second one. There were so many unanswered questions, <laughs> they had to make Sharknado 2. Oh, yeah, certainly. No, no idea. Um, that's, yeah. I'm actually, you know, maybe I'll watch that tonight. Put that on my to-do list. Um, anyway, senior year, uh, that was the first time that I had actually tried astrophotography. I took a, a class in high school that was only available to seniors, and it was an astronomy class. We had 8-inch telescopes um, that we could take out at night. We held class at night as well. Class was held at like 10 p.m., and it was freezing. It was like 1 degree. I'm from somewhere really cold. And, uh, well, it can get really cold. And I wasn't even that unhappy. To, I mean, I wasn't unhappy to be out there. I remember looking at the, the first, the first um, object that wasn't the moon that I had looked through uh, with a telescope at. Um, it was the Orion Nebula. And I think my mind was absolutely blown to pieces about the fact that the photons, the actual photons of light, passed through the telescope and went to my eye and were registered by my brain. Like that actually happened. It was an actual, it's not a picture. And that really hit me. And I think I was like, hey, this is really cool. This is something I want to maybe look into more. And it, it made it easier that I mean, I liked astronomy anyway, and I had always liked astronomy. I think in third grade, I remember deciding Saturn was my favorite planet. Um, so I kind of had like favorite astronomy things anyway. So I was like, I'll give it a shot. And I'm glad I did. And I'm just wondering, uh, as a kid, um, I think I've already bored you with this story off camera. I was inspired to get into documentary filmmaking and specifically in the world of science and um, the planet and biology and all that by the late, great Jacques Cousteau. Was there any sort of television programming or people like that that got you started or played a role in inspiring you to get into science uh, in any facet or form or into astronomy? Well, I had actually, as a child, never really watched any science shows that were specific to astronomy and astronomy topics. I do know that um, many people uh, have the experience of watching Carl Sagan's um, Cosmos, and that's, that's something that I wish that I would have picked up a little sooner. I have been able to watch some of Cosmos uh, by Carl Sagan, and he is a role model to me uh, 
and as a as a scientist and as a science communicator as well. I think he's really great. Um, but before that, I had the you know Discovery Channel, Animal Planet. Oh, I was all over it. Uh, my first <laughs> my first science television series experience was was uh, about scorpions. Actually, I remember that day and. I thought they were so, they weren't even like about sharks or anything, but I remember thinking like, this is so scary, but so cool. <laughs> and uh, ever since then I had watched Animal Planet all the time, so, and Discovery Channel too. That, those are sciencey things that had solidified my interest in science in general. Did any, did any of the movies that uh, were out before you were um, born or <laughs> like the original Star Wars, um, or TV shows that were non-scientific, that were uh, works of fiction or speculative fiction? Did they uh, inspire you? Star Wars versus Star Trek? Um, where do you come down on that dividing line? Ooh, oh man. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna get so much grief from the audience from the, well, I don't know, depending on Star Wars versus Star Trek. Um, I love Star Wars a lot. Uh, at one point in my life, um, I was a Pad uh, Queen Amidala, <laughs> even for Halloween, and I was also Padme in college at one point uh, for Halloween, and I would always dress like them, and I'd read all the books, and I'd watch all the movies over and over again, and uh, I loved the, the sci-fi aspect, obviously science fiction. I knew that something like that wasn't real, but the idea that this is going to sound kind of repetitive. The idea that the idea can exist was really cool to me. And I would totally be a Jedi if I could. Actually, let me even rephrase that. When I graduated, um, or when all the science, College of Science people graduated from the university with our degrees, we got to say a quote. And my quote was, could have been a Jedi. Got a laugh. I was kind of proud of myself for that one, uh, but and I'll say like, if I could be a Jedi, I totally would. So there's that. Now I have to say I'm not anti Star Trek. I just don't know as much about it. So maybe I could do a little homework and and get up to date on the Star Trek, and then then we'll come back to this. Stay tuned. Well, here at AerospaceNews.com, we're uh, an equal opportunity sci-fi nerd. <laughs> Uh, definitely love both the, the Star Trek and the sci-fi, uh, Star Wars, I should say, uh, universe. Um, perhaps biased in some part because I grew up watching Star Trek, the TV show, on Kinescope. Look it up. Um, but, uh, but I definitely love Star Wars uh, myself. Um, love all the nerd specifics you, you dropped just then. Um, it says very good, good things about you. And... You know, it, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in the last calendar year or so, did we not spot an exoplanet that had twin suns like Tatooine in the first movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I think there may be more than just one system uh, that this was um, identified, uh, this, this type of system. It's a, a binary star system, and the planet uh, orbits both of them. And so you would have two stars, which is very much like Tatooine. And it's kind of a joke between exoplanet astronomers to include 
a, a famous picture of Luke Skywalker walking on Tatooine with both, the, both setting suns. And we, we have those in like slides and posters, and it gets a good chuckle every time. And I think that was uh, Kepler. It had identified one or more of those kind of systems. So it was, it was cool to kind of nerd out on that as well. We get a little, a little extra giddy from it. Relate it, it's actually real in a sense. Now hopefully there's well, like, a, a, like an Earth-like planet, that'd be cool. But just the fact they exist anyway is pretty rad. Yeah, for sure. But maybe with a little more water than Tatooine, that was <laughs> a, a little dusty. Yeah, just a bit. Could use a fan. <laughs> um, on the subject of Carl Sagan, uh, obviously Cosmos got a reboot with the great great Neil deGrasse Tyson hosting it, and uh, among other people producing, uh, the fabulous Seth MacFarlane uh, has helped make that, that show a, a more modern reality. Uh, are you getting to watch any of uh, Cosmos, the next generation, for lack of a better way of describing it? Oh, I wouldn't miss it. No way. I, would, I was like all over that. I haven't had like a party <laughs> at home. We had like a Cosmos viewing party. It was great. Oh, outstanding. I... Um, I personally was, was uh, moved by or struck by the very first episode where, uh, in, a, in a way that seemed like a very sincerely felt tribute, uh, Tyson took a moment to sort of go about passing the baton from Carl Sagan's version to his own near the end of that episode. And uh, he spoke about the time that uh, he was fortunate enough to be a guest of Carl Sagan's uh, and visit his office on a weekend. Did you get a chance to, to see that part? Oh, yeah. And uh, I may or may not have shed a tear for seven or more. Um, that was really touching. And I think especially as a developing astronomer, and you know, I, I know that I don't know everything. I'm not claiming to know everything. And I know that I'm still learning um, to see that kind of leadership and to have a role model like either Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, or I guess Carl Sagan as Neil deGrasse Tyson's role model and seeing where he has developed as uh, a person as well, as, as well as a scientist. It's, it was very touching. I was very happy. Have you had um, any experiences that were similar to that as you've attended your professional um, gatherings and trade events and research? Uh, exhibitions and things like that? Yeah, and I think that as someone who is just learning about um, a certain topic, or it, it doesn't even have to be uh, astronomy or physics, or it could be anything in general. If you're learning about a subject and you're around people who are very much more experienced I think it's common for us to be afraid to ask questions or to be afraid to admit that you don't know everything. You don't want to be viewed as like stupid or anything, even not, not that people would do that, but it's just, I think it's natural to be afraid of something like that. And I've had amazing role models in, within my undergrad and people that I really look up to who have helped me overcome First, the fear of feeling stupid, um, even though, I mean, I, I know I'm, we're, people in general, we're just not, I mean, we're, we're not stupid, really. I mean, no one else thinks like, oh, wow, what a stupid question. 
I think one of the greatest achievements that I've actually uh, obtained as an undergrad was being able to ask questions and knowing what questions to ask and having those there to answer and help me ask in the first place. I think that's something we could all take from, take from this. Yeah. It's, it's important to, to ask, ask why, uh, ask how, and uh, to have people as generous with their time. And folks, let me just, if you haven't seen that episode of Cosmos, I, I don't know if it's available on Netflix or from other sources, but uh, definitely go back and try and watch it and, and watch Neil deGrasse Tyson tell that story of how generous and kind Carl Sagan was to him on that day and how it uh, informed the kind of man that Neil deGrasse Tyson wanted to be. And without getting into any boring details, uh, long before that TV show aired, I had an occasion to have to call on by telephone Neil deGrasse Tyson. And um, he was uncommonly kind and generous to me on the telephone. Uh, and he did everything that he spoke about doing years later on that, that TV show. And I, I would hope that we would all treat other people in our lives the same way. Um, ask the mentors in your life, the more experienced people, questions. And, uh, and I hope that you're lucky enough to, to get them to answer your questions and be patient with you. But the worst they can say is no, so don't be afraid to ask. Do ask. Speaking of questions, speaking of questions, Lima Bravo, Lauren Biddle, um, should people feel brave enough to ask you questions? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I hope you ask me questions. I would love to answer them. And even if they're questions, actually, I, I almost hope that they're questions that I don't know the answer to right away, because then that means that I get to learn, too. <laughs> um, yeah, if you, you can comment below. Ask any question you, you want about astronomy, science. And I'd love to, to discuss it on a video with you guys. Now, now to be, just to be clear and set your expectations, if there's 10,000 questions for Lauren, um, obviously we won't have the time in the channel to answer every single one of them. But if you do have a, a question, none are too rudimentary or basic about science or astronomy or how to go about finding an a place to study astronomy in school uh, or news from recent discoveries. Between Lauren and I, uh, I can tell you we would love to have you ask those questions. And as she said, leave a comment below. Um, you can also leave comments over on our site at aerospacenews.com, but it's probably a little more compact to put them right here on the video. Because uh, Lauren has so generously agreed to come back, I hope, right? And, uh, and visit with us in future episodes, uh, I hope many, many, many more um, on a pretty frequent basis. So um, did I get that right, Lauren? Are you coming back or, or oh, totally. have I worn out my welcome? Yep, coming back. This was fun. <laughs> Score. Um, so please leave a comment. Um, we're going to talk to Lauren in the future about breaking news, um, just about what it's the work of being an exoplaneteer, um, what it's like to continue her academic career, uh, and all that other kind of fun stuff. Uh, Lots of goodness, lots of Astro Lorne goodness coming up. Um, I'm going to put on screen right about now or at some point not too long after this where you can find Lorne on Twitter so that you could read her, uh, her uh, informative uh, and fun and sometimes just amusing tweets. 
and of course, to really keep up with where she is, at least for now, subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you can see her in upcoming episodes and hopefully some other stuff that's worth your while watching too. So I think that kind of wraps this episode up. Um, it's our first Hangout or live interview. Um, I could not ask for a more generous and uh, wonderful person to interview for, for this first time. Uh, astronomer Lauren Biddle, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, I, this was such a, a fun experience, and I'm really looking forward to all the, all the new videos that we have and all the new topics, especially. Um, it was just a great time. Thank you. Well, it's absolutely been my pleasure. Um, everybody, we'll see you again next time. Again, remember to subscribe, and uh, that's it for now. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that show, and thanks for listening. You and others in our listener crew made this episode, like all our podcasts and videos, possible. If you've not already joined, please visit aerospacenews.com fans and make any contribution you can afford. Every bit of support helps, no matter how small. Thank you. This program is copyright 2019, all rights reserved.